Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Wurzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. We explore the ideas, strategies, and approaches that brought them to where they are today. Hear the insights, behind-the-scenes secrets, and methods you can't find anywhere else. This podcast is for you if you are a seasoned investor, an upstart entrepreneur, or someone looking to break into the real estate and hospitality investing world. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at jwerzak on Twitter. And if you have enjoyed this show, I'd be incredibly grateful if you followed us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you listen to. We record on video, so you can always find all of our episodes on YouTube and be sure to subscribe. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. My conversation today is with Brady Cobb, founder of Sunburn Cannabis. This is really fun and different from a lot of the guests we've had on the pod so far. We talk about the founding of Sunburn, how he came up with the branding, why he decided to create a brand-driven cannabis company, the origin story, which involves his dad being one of the biggest weed drug smugglers in Florida, in the country, how he's growing the business, how he's developing a vertically integrated platform, what he's doing in Washington to lobby to get regulation changed, the challenges in the business, growing the business, raising capital. We talk about it all. It's a really fun conversation. Please enjoy my chat today with Brady Cobb. Okay, so where I wanted to start, I think it's really cool because a lot of people start a profession and feel like they're stuck in that profession and never pivot to something else, never follow their dreams because it's too hard. They have family obligations. They got a mortgage, this, that, and the other thing. You started as a lawyer and now your business involves something that you can break it down for us, but it's technically illegal in the federal side, right? So tell me about how you transitioned from law to being an entrepreneur and how you made that first leap. You know, for me, I've always had the entrepreneurial spirit and that was partly because of, you know, you learned it from family. I'm just like the same way. I'm sure you're around it. You see it, you feel it. I kind of got really lucky in the sense, you know, my father was obviously a, a, a pretty big, you know, he was, they called him dollar bill. He was a hustler. He was, you know, the largest importer of cannabis in the history of the justice department. Literally 1977 to 1983, over in a million and a half pounds of weed, he moved into the country. He got indicted, went to prison. It broke my family up. And, you know, you hear about that when you're growing up and it's, it's you know, I've always had an affinity towards cannabis too, probably for far longer than my mom would ever want. Sorry, mom. But, you know, I grew up as surfing in, in, in South Florida. That's, it's a part of the culture. So I got lucky when my mom remarried because I hit the stepdad lottery because my stepdad, Mitch, was even as big or bigger of a hustler from a business perspective than my father. So I was, you know, Mitch owned marinas, bought real estate all over the state, owned restaurants, has been involved and has had his hands in all kinds of things. So the entrepreneurial spirit's always been there. It was, you know, for me, I always love the law. I love arguing. And for, you know, ultimately wanting to pursue cannabis, knowing it's federally illegal, having a legal background was incredibly important. Most of the CEOs you see in public cannabis companies are lawyers, have been lawyers before, because it's the, the law changes so quickly that even the law firms can't keep up with it. So when you're making decisions and evaluating risk, it's a good, strictly good, you know, trait to have. I also, you know, my, my legal practice was litigation for the beginning. I know, you know I tried 
17 cases to verdict in state and federal court, all commercial business cases. And I've probably done a couple hundred administrative appeals and administrative cases. So that's another good skill set to have as a CEO. Because as you're evaluating contracts, as you're evaluating mergers, as you're evaluating financings and deals and risk disclosures and everything else, our last business was a public company. It's a good trait to have. So you're not just, you know, a burden and nest waiting for general counsel to tell you what to do. I made the pivot. It was a defined moment that I knew I wanted to leave the practice of law. My father passed away in 2010 of bone cancer. And at the very end of his life, which bone cancer is brutal as far as cancers go from a pain perspective, the only thing that got him relief was cannabis. And I would, I was, you know, lobbying for Trip Scott. I was running their Tallahassee office and working for former Senate President Jim Scott. And on the weekends, I'd go see my dad at his ranch outside Tallahassee. And he was shaking so bad from the pain and everything else that I had to roll him joints. And when seeing what that did for him at the end of his life, I was like, it's going to happen. And California had just popped. This is 2010. So 2009, California is the first state to go. And I'm going, it's going to happen. So we buried him. My, you know, my son was born. Carter was born on May 27th. And seven weeks later to the day, my father passed away. So I kind of had the ultimate high of here's your son. As you know what that feels like, and then the ultimate low of your dad's, you know, I was a healthcare surrogate. I had to pull the plug. I had to, you know, switch to palliative care, and then we watched him pass away. And that was the get busy living or get busy dying moment in my life where, you know, I called Lauren up. She, you know, we've got my wife, and we have a, you know, a seven-week-old kid. And I said, I'm leaving Trip Scott. And she goes, yeah, your fucking mind. And I said, no, I, I, this is it. If I don't do this now, I'm at a point where I had just made partner. I was the youngest guy to ever make partner in the firm. And I was on a path to be there and be a, you know, a partner, probably have a pretty decent life. You know, those guys make good money, but I always wanted to be on my own. So at that point in time, I, I left. I'm, Ed Pizzoli at the firm still had a great quote. It was the most unique reaction to anyone making partner they've ever had. I told him two days after they told me I made partner that I was leaving. Uh, so he's like, that was unique. But we had a good enough relationship. I never tried to take one of their clients because I respect them. I respect those guys a lot. They took a shot on me as a you know tier three law school guy and gave me a chance. And so we, I still was up counsel for that firm. And I went and started my own firm to start because then I, that was my foray into cannabis. I could start doing the early legal and regulatory kind of licensing work. And that evolved into when the Canadian cannabis, when Canada went public and that evolved into bringing the Canadian companies over the border, doing the first cross-border securities transactions to be able to have them in the U.S., but still listed on the big board exchanges. And then we were just pushing for Florida to go. I, I always wanted to, do, I wanted to do Florida because I wanted to honor my dad. He did it here. I wanted to do it here. So we worked to change the law. And that's where being a lobbyist and working for a Senate president really fucking helped. Because we went to Tallahassee, we missed in 14, and we got it in 16. And when they handed the license out on July 1st of 17, we had raised $40 million and we acquired what was our first company that became a company called Liberty Health Sciences. So it was in 2010 in a hospital in Tallahassee, Florida, that I made the decision right as my father was passing away in July of 2010 that, okay, here we go. Time to what go was the biggest it. lesson you learned from your dad? Don't waste a day. Go. And that's how he lived his life full throttle. I mean, he was from a dirt poor cotton sharecropping family in Northwest Florida. He ran away from home, lied on his application and joined the Air Force at 17 to get out and hustled his way all through Florida, ended up as the distributor for Hawaiian Tropic from Miami to Key West, lived on Sugarloaf Key and my marker 19. That's where I was. That's where I was. I lived until I was 10, went to Key West Elementary. For, uh, really? Which, oh, yeah. 
which wow. was pretty full circle that we just opened a dispensary on Duval Street in Key West, about 150 yards from where my dad moved his first weight in. His friends owned the pier house. We used to go to the pier house all the time. And that's where he unloaded his first 70,000 pounds of Colombian weed was at the pier house. So I can physically from our store in Key West, I can see the pier house. So it's a pretty, it was a pretty full circle moment. But, you know, the thing I always, you know, my dad ran, he went from nothing to, they made 300 and something million bucks in weed in the seventies. Those were seventies numbers. And, you know, they won, they won Le Mans in 1979. They flew to France and bought the GTs with cash. They had IndyCar teams. They had, you know, race car, you know, road Atlanta teams. They had Daytona teams. He had four private jets. He's got full length mink. He's a redneck. I mean, he'd have a floor length mink coat with ostrich cowboy boots and a cowboy hat. That was him. So for me, what I learned from him is obviously don't go that far, fly a little bit under the radar, but if you're going to go do something, fucking do it and don't look back because you don't get a second go around. I mean, he, he died at 67. I'm, you know, 42 years old. So I'm doing the math. It's like, you know, I think I'll live a little bit longer. I take care of myself a little bit better, I hope. But if not, I'm going to make the best of what I have and hit the gas pedal. How did your dad's cannabis story at that time, weed, whatever you want to call it, how did that story end? So he, the way he got into the business was pretty interesting. We were living on the keys of being a redneck. He had a barn with four acres of Sugarloaf Key. And I actually just took my kids to go see it for the first time when we were down in Key West. And Colombians were moving a big load of weed down the road and their truck broke down. And they knocked on his door and said, can we put it in your barn? He goes, whatever. And they put the trailer in the barn. They came back the next day and picked him up and gave him $100,000 in cash in 1975. So he was like, well, what the fuck are we doing this again? This is awesome. And fast forward, he's had 13 shrimp boats, never caught a shrimp. And, you know, was probably the largest smuggler. It's still one of the largest indictments. And he, he was ultimately indicted in 1983. I was two years old. He had F. Lee Bailey, Alan Dershowitz, Johnny Cochran, Fred Levin, all this. He the, the OJ team for his lawyers. I still have all the cards. Congratulations on the birth of your son, Brady, you know, Johnny Cochran. And we were, the, he bought Eric Clapton's house on Golden Beach where they recorded uh, the Ocean Drive album. That's where I brought, was brought home from the hospital. When he went to prison, my mom and him got divorced. We got to keep the house in the Keys, so we lived there until I was about 10. And then, he, you know, I didn't get to see him much. He was in prison. When I did get to see him, a lot of it was, those, I remember going to the prisons and doing the little, you know, visitation things. And then, you know, he moved to Pensacola, and I'd see him a couple times a year. We, we fished all the Blue Marlin tournaments. He was a big fisherman. So we would rent a Hatteras, and we'd go fish all the tournaments on the Gulf Coast. We actually won the Pensacola Billfish Tournament twice, but... That was the kind of the extent of my, I didn't really get to spend a lot of time with him until I was 17, 18 and went to Florida State and he moved back to Northwest Florida and bought, bought a big ranch. But, you know, this Sunburn name, interesting thing about the Sunburn name is the name of the, his front business was Suntan Lotion. That's where he washed the cash. So that all the, all the race cars were called Sun Systems. So when the DEA put a task force together to arrest him, they named the DEA task force Operation Sunburn to go arrest him. So we named the cannabis company. We originally built this as a multi-series Netflix show that we sold to Imperative Entertainment. We bought the rights back when they shelved it. But we named the cannabis brand Sunburn as a, you know, partly to honor my father and every other smuggler. I mean, a lot of South Florida was built on smuggling and narcotics, whether it be marijuana or cocaine. Miami Skyline was built on cocaine from Cocaine Cowboys. It's proof in the pudding. Thousand percent. Same with Fort Lauderdale. Same with Palm Beach. I mean, nobody likes to talk about Palm Beach. It's more booze. But we named the company Sunburn as an ode to that and as a kind of a middle finger to the DEA. And it's an authentic brand, which is what we're really, we're really excited about. 
because it has that brand story that you can't create. It's the ethos of it is everything that's Florida. So he, you know, he was in prison for a bit and you know, that's quite the experience to go through. So that's why I went to law school. I never wanted to have the guys with the blue jackets and yellow letters showing up to visit me ever. So everything I'm doing is uh, the exact opposite of what he did in that regard. Well, let's talk about that a little bit more because you got to reconcile, like you clearly have an amazing relationship, had an amazing relationship with your dad. It was obviously, I would think very traumatic, but you went to law school. You don't want to get arrested. What sparked your interest in cannabis? Well, I mean, I mean, I'm I'm one of the few CEOs in this sector that actually uses the, the product. It's a big part of my life and it has been. I'm not, you know, I'm not as big of a drinker. I I, I enjoy cannabis more because I just hate being hungover. And it just it calmed me down. I was a product of a single mom. You know, I was a skinny kid, single mom. So it was something that so I was coming up. We moved a lot. I moved when I was in fifth grade. We moved when I was in tenth grade. So it was, you know, for me, I'm a big surfer. Surfing, surfing's my passion. Outside of tennis, surfing's my passion. And snowboarding, now, you know, all those kind of extreme sports is what I've always gravitated toward. And it's a huge part of the fabric of, of those cultures. So for me, I always wanted to do it. And every kid wants to do something similar to what their dad did. You know, that's just natural if you look, you look through time. So I just didn't want to go to prison. So my whole deal was, let's wait, let's change the law. Let's not go around it. Let's change it. So that's where having the legal background, working for Jim Scott and learning the Tallahassee game getting to work with a guy like Haley Barber in Washington for since around 2014, working and being one of the leading voices for cannabis reform in DC, being a part of it and being able to be a leading voice in changing it gave me the comfort to be able to know that we were on the right side of things. And then obviously, I mean, we're on the, we're on the verge of a repeal of prohibition. I mean, in 1933 generational wealth was created when, you know, certain families, there was a ton of alcohol companies, but there's some that are still around. And I, my entire goal is that I intend and will be one of those names in cannabis that's still around. So we're literally on the verge of it. I've been working policy reform. You know, we're now at 43 states of 50 with medical programs, 30 something, 32 or 33 states with adult use. I've been working the Safe Banking Act since it was drafted. I was in the room when it was drafted. I worked on the States Reform Act, helped draft it, helped draft the HOPE Act. We're, you know, the president's order to rescheduling of cannabis, which we're going to have news on that by the end of this year. It's been a rough road, but, you know, you keep going, you survive because not many moments like this in modern history where an entire industry gets to finally have its moment in the sunshine. And, you know, that, that's why I'm still here. So what kind of opportunities do you think the changes in regula- regulation will present to you? You already have a cannabis company. This is your second cannabis company. What opportunities do you see coming down the pipe if the regulation flips? So, yeah. So from a short-term perspective, I mean, everything that we do from an ancillary services perspective is demonstrably more expensive than as if I was selling alcohol, health insurance, property insurance, cost of capital. I mean, our cost of capital is in the mid, you know, even for the public companies with, you know, you know, you look at a company like GTI, my friend Ben Kovler, who's also an Aspen guy, I just saw him the other day in the park. I mean, his cost of capital is north of 20%. And he's got nine quarters, nine quarters in a row of positive net income and, you know, a couple hundred million on his balance sheet. So cost of capital comes down dramatically. I mean, everyone complains about high interest rates right now with the Fed raising rates fucking finally. And I'm sitting here going, that's great. You guys are now paying six, 8%. We've been paying fucking 17 to 20 for the better part of the last five years and smiling about it. 
The other thing that's little known about cannabis is there's a provision of the IRS tax code called 280E. And 280E, basically, it was designed to deal with drug cartels, the Colombian drug cartels, and their front businesses. Then those guys were pretty crafty, had enough money to hire the best professionals to help them. They were they were writing off everything they possibly could in their front businesses, so they had zero tax bills too. Not only were they breaking the law, breaking the law and making billions, they're paying zero taxes with their U.S. front businesses to wash the cash. <laughs> wow! So the IRS created a provision of the tax code called 280E that you basically can't write off any cost of sales if you are engaged in the sale of a Schedule One substance. So I get no cost write offs whatsoever. The effective tax rate on cannabis companies is north of 60%. If you factor in, if you're in a state like New York or Illinois or California, that 60 is then you got to add the state taxes on top of it. Some of these cases, these guys are paying 70, 70 plus percent taxes. So the minute that we go off schedule one, we completely, all of that flows directly to the bottom line when you can start preparing a proper business tax return that you can in- involve your cost of sales and everything else. The biggest thing it's going to do is it's going to create, and, and there's there's debate on this. I personally believe when the bet that we've made when we raise capital, so we've raised 105 million of capital so far, a lot of it from the alcohol industry is alcohol is going to take over cannabis. And the minute that the wall, and they're controlling when the wall comes down because they're going to want to put it in the three-tier distribution just like they have booths. The minute that happens, now we're in every C store, we're in every other store just like everybody else, and brands are going to matter, which is our bet on this. Our bet is on that we have an authentic brand that some, that, that alcohol is going to want to carry. And we're not saying that prospectively. We let the foxes in the hen house when we raise capital and they're helping us build it. So the biggest thing is interstate commerce is going to open up, tax reform. And then ultimately, I mean, if you look at the data, that's kind of, we, I study the data on a daily basis. North of 83% of Americans, including north of 60% of Republicans, want full cannabis legalization. of Americans couldn't agree on what color the sky is at a given point in time in the day, but they agree that cannabis should be reformed. The growth rate that we have seen of new customers, people that, you you know, invite you to come spend two hours in our our dispensary in Fort Lauderdale when I'm back in town, you will see the full gamut of Fort Lauderdale society coming in there from the fixed income grandma to the soccer mom, to the workout junkie, to the business professional pulls up in an Aston Martin. The category covers everybody. And the reason that alcohol is not going to be able to stay away is they cannot let seltzer happen again. Seltzer took 50 points of market share from every major beer company inside of two years because it's body conscious and people are sick and be a hungover. If there's one thing these newer generations are showing us, they're not necessarily interested in getting blacked out all the time. And cannabis is a big part of their lives. And it's a it's it, it it's very interesting to study the data points on that. Alcohol is paying attention in a big way because they have to be involved. They can't let it happen again. Pharma, I don't think it's pharma's not going to come as big. I think pharma takes psychedelics. Okay, so then who is holding it back in Washington right now? If there's that much momentum, if there's that many people, what is the holdup? Is it because nothing can get done in Washington, or is it something bigger than that? That's part of it. But the other part of it is there's, they weren't ready. They being the natural predators, the barbarians at the gate, they weren't ready yet. So, you know, everyone, I've been lobbying DC on cannabis and, you know, lobbying all comes down to money. The only thing that separates, in my humble opinion, you know, the United States government and our, our political system from 
some West African oil country is that then the West African oil company, you show up to the presidential palace with a briefcase full of cash and you walk out with the oil rights. Here, you have to create a political action committee and host fundraisers and pretend that you're not just handing them money. So money talks in DC and alcohols had a 70 year head start. They weren't ready yet. So they could slow the process down. And they have been slowing the process down because remember, if you look back to 2017, 2018, 2019, cannabis stocks were ripping. You know, these, some of these companies had three, four, five billion dollar market caps as startups with no real path to positive EBITDA. And it was all on the promise of what it would look like when everything changes. And they took, they, they popped the balloon when they killed the Safe Banking Act two or three times in a row. Now these companies have $300 million valuations. Do you think that Anheuser-Busch InBev would rather buy into cannabis at a $300 million valuation or a $3 billion valuation? So they've been, they weren't ready yet. A lot of the, unfortunately, their first point, a lot of the, I call them dinosaurs in DC, the Mitch McConnell's, the, you know, the, the fine the over 80 senators out there. Correct. They don't get it. They slowed it down. But the other real problem we have, and I don't want to get political, but the Democratic Party has been an absolute disaster on this issue for six years. They had the majority to be able to go do it. And they kept what the, the act. What I like to say they did is if you put too many ornaments on a Christmas tree, it's going to tip over. So instead of just getting the first win and passing the Safe Banking Act, it was, well, we got to have equity for every you know person of color who was ever arrested for cannabis. They should get a license. And we need money over here. And we need money for this social equity cause. And everyone should get free weed and free licenses and everything else. And the Republicans are like, what are you talking about? Because that's why I engaged Haley Barber, because I didn't want to flip Democrats. I want to flip Republicans. And we flipped them. Tommy Tuberville, senator from Alabama who took Jeff Sessions' seat, is vocally in support of the Safe Banking Act. If you would have told me that, that would, he would have said that three years ago, I would have said, you're smoking too much of my product. So it's it, the Democrats have, and they're finally, I think, have woken up because Chuck Schumer has really screwed this up pretty badly. And his home state in New York has been an absolute disaster because they muddied it with social equity. The program's basically bankrupt because they don't have any money because they can't access banking. So I think he's finally woken up to how bad it is. And I'm hopeful we get, I mean, we were looking at safe banking coming out of the Senate in the next two weeks. All right. So tell us what safe banking act is. So the safe banking act right now, most banks can't touch us. So in two ways, they can't custody shares. So like the two biggest, the two biggest trading houses, JP Morgan, Pershing, they will not effectuate the, they will not allow shares to transfer. So if you are, you know, if you have accounts at anywhere, but Merrill Lynch, you can't trade cannabis stocks. So from a, from a, from a custody standpoint, they basically ground the market to a halt, you know, inducing low volumes and everything else. What's, what's amazing is I know you, you, you're, you play in public markets. Think about this for a second. <laughs> if you are a Canadian company selling Canadian weed to Canadians, you can list on the New York stock exchange. If you're a United States company paying U.S. taxes, employing U.S. citizens, and selling products in a medical program to U.S. patients, you have to list on the Canadian Securities Exchange, and you can't bank in the United States. So you're telling me Tilray is not, they're not selling to U.S. customers? All, all Canadian. Irwin's a good buddy. Now, Irwin's buying ancillary assets. He's buying up distilleries because he's getting ready for the wall to come down. But Everything they do is not it's the only way to be listed on a U.S. exchange is you cannot have any plant touching business in the United States. So safe banking basically reconciles that. And what it does is the big re the reason that banks won't touch us is because we're a schedule one substance, 
every time we transact, we're technically engaging in money laundering by the definition of money laundering. So all the AML guidelines get kick in, meaning that if a bank's going to take your business, they have to do enhanced oversight and enhanced review and file what's called a SARS report. So every time I write a check to a plumber to fix a leak at one of our irrigation systems at one of our farms, they have to bank would have to file a suspicious activity report. It's a fucking disaster. So Safe Banking Act basically harmonizes state law, which says cannabis is legal and federal law and requires FinCEN and Treasury to update their guidance to carve out that legal activity from being something that's covered by the AML guidelines, which will immediately open up banking. It will open up financial services. And more importantly, it'll pave the way for NASDAQ and NYSE to allow these companies. This should be an American growth story. During COVID, we were, we were the highest growing industry from a, from a hiring perspective in the country. We were declared essential businesses in almost every state that there's a medical program because we provide, you know, a medical product. So it should be an American growth story and the business shouldn't be on Bay Street in Toronto for all these companies and underwritings and go publics. It should be in Manhattan. And it just hasn't been able to happen yet. The, tr- the exchanges want it. NASDAQ wants it bad. So does NYSE. But they are not willing to go across that line and take that leap of faith while there's still this anti-money laundering issue out there. So you're out here paying a ton of tax, but how are you actually conducting your business? How do you use banks? Well, there's a few banks and there's actually one FDIC insured bank or actually two now, East West and Valley National that have jumped in, but they're state chartered banks. So we bank at a, a couple of state chartered banks here in Florida. So we have the same wire capabilities, checking capabilities, everything else. There's two payroll companies that service the industry because ADP won't touch it. So, I mean, it's tough. Life on the frontier is hard. I'm not complaining, but life on the frontier is hard. It's, we've been kicked out of payroll companies. I personally have had two different bank accounts closed. At Sun, you know, we had family accounts at SunTrust. I had all my investment accounts at UBS. You just get a letter in the mail that, sorry, you know, you're engaging in, a, in an activity that is against our policies. Get your money out in 30 days. Fuck off. So, I mean, it's, you know, Merrill Lynch was the only one that was smart enough to say there's a lot of people in cannabis making a lot of money that work in the industry. We'll take your accounts because they do the enhanced risk disclosures. But banking is, is expensive. We're paying 30 to 35% more for our banking services than if I was selling, you know, alcohol. So how have the participants changed since 2010? Because what I'm hearing is a ton of costs and very little margin right now. You probably have to raise a bunch of money just to keep your head above water. How have the people in the business changed from when it first started in, you know, 2010? You know, for me, it's a lot of people went out on a buying spree when the market got hot in 16, 17, and 18 companies did and tried to become the the in vogue thing then was to become a multi-state operator an MSO. But if you think about it, I never did. I never chased the shiny object. Because if you think about it, you're talking about now you can't cross state lines. So it's not like a liquor company where I can have my distillery in Kentucky and I can, you know, a whiskey company and I can ship it across the country through distribution centers with, you know, Johnson Brothers or whatever distributor I want to use. In cannabis, you have to have individually siloed operations in each state. So you're now you're talking about having massive cost centers from an OPEX and CAPEX standpoint in each state. But the money back then was cheap because it was this, the market was a bull market, everything's ripping. And then when safe banking failed twice, there's game of musical chairs happened and a lot of people turned out to not have chairs. 
So what you've seen in cannabis is it, it, it's a tough business. You need to be very disciplined. You cannot chase shiny objects and you have to pick the markets that you want to be in very carefully. So we've always chosen Florida, A, because the demographics of Florida, B, because the state's affinity towards the, the category. It's been a part of the, like we said, it's it built the skyline of some of the biggest cities. And C, Florida's licensing framework, it's limited license. There's only 21 licenses in Florida. Compare that with California, which has 12,000. Compare that with Colorado, which has 9,000. So choosing Florida was about the, the thing Florida requires you to do is be vertically integrated. So you have to cultivate it process it, manufacture it, transport it, and dispense it. You can't outsource any part of that business to anybody else, which means on the front end, it's very CapEx intensive, a lot like your business where you, you're building the fucking hotel. You can't hire, no one else is doing it, you're doing it. But the benefit is when you get to scale, you get to enjoy the higher margin of having a year cost of goods sold. I'm not buying, I'm not 7-Eleven making a retail 30% margin by having my place get filled up. I'm filling my own store up, which means, A, I can build my brand and use my store as a tasting room to immerse the consumer in the brand. And B, our average margin across company-wide is like 73% right now because we control our cost of goods sold. More importantly, we control our quality. So there's two types of licensing in cannabis. You have horizontal, which is what California has, which is you can just be a retailer. You can just be a grower. You could just be a distributor. But most of them are just the only ones in California making any money right now are the ones that are vertically integrated. And we are a vertically integrated license in Florida, but you have to be good at all those things. So having a good team, I've been building my team for close to 10 years to get ready for this. And we've stayed together. We sold our last business. We all left together and decided to stay together for the next one. So a lot of these companies that you've heard that are in, feeling pain, and there's a ton of them right now. They all got too big on the promise of federal law changing. And as our chairman, Danny Moses, who's a dear friend of mine, who was one of the guys on the big short, Danny's whole, you know, him and his partners, Vincent and Porter Collins at Seawolf, those guys, their, their phrase I always like to use is, if the government is your theme, investors will redeem. Because you can't make a bet based on Congress doing anything to bail you out. And that is what a lot of companies did is they bet that it was going to happen. They got really big. And now you're seeing Cureleaf, for example, billion-dollar company, they're divesting assets in places because they can't make it work. And truly just divested Massachusetts and divested California. So they're in a lot of pain because they weren't disciplined. So if anything, with, every, with all the challenges we've already talked about today, it heightens the need to, if you're going to raise capital, I mean, we raised $105 million in, from, from June of 22 through... March of 23, that is the biggest equity raise in cannabis by probably 6x in that time period. So, in that we're a private, small, single state operator, but it was on the back of the brand and having a winning team. But more importantly, most investors said, okay, you're disciplined. You're not just chasing. Build it here, do it right. If Florida goes adult use, like I think it will in 2025, we'll be the second largest market in the world. So everything we're doing right now is to get ready for that. But the key in cannabis is don't chase shiny objects because you can vaporize money in this business fast. So then let's pause there and talk to me about how you think about being vertically integrated because it sounds great, but it's actually really hard. It's hard on the hotel side. It's hard in any business because you're basically running five different businesses at one time. And sure, you're getting scale, but you're still running those businesses. So kind of like start from the the bottom like growing the stuff i mean you're basically a farmer with a beautiful store that's selling his crops to the public but walk me through that whole chain yeah so 
the, it starts and ends at the farm. So the good news is, is where most of my competitors have screwed up is they don't invest in the farm. And a lot of that is because they're not familiar with the category. And in cannabis, you have two basic plays, two, two things you can be. You can be a, a high volume discount operator akin to like a Walmart, or you can be a premium operator like a Whole Foods. 90% of the market's Walmart, and they're not, they didn't knowingly make that choice, but the way they constructed their facilities and how they built their grows and how they built the environmentals around their grows and how they built their grow teams and what they invested in in both people, talent, and equipment and facilities made it such that they had to be a volume player that's low because they're low quality. Whereas we've always, when we first did our market analysis in Florida, when we launched the last business in 2019, we made the conscious decision to say, we're going to be the best. If everyone else is Walmart, we're going to be Whole Foods. We're going to be lower volume, higher margin, really top quality so that we can compete with the black market. Because in most markets, most states, the illicit market quality outpaces the legal market. It's not even close. And kind of having a lot of friends in that illicit market, knowing a lot of the illicit market cultivators, I know that. So my whole point was that I actually brought a lot of illicit market cultivators that were really good. And they're on my grow team right now and have been for the last six years. And everyone always asks me, why do you hire illicit market guys? I go, well, number one, they're, they've been doing it. There's no such thing as an experienced legal market cultivator, because that means they would have just started right around 2016 in Florida. That's not a lot of experience. There's guys that have been doing it for 20 years in the shadows. The second thing is they're all MacGyvers because when you're an illicit market operator, if you have a leak in your, in your grow, you're not calling a plumber because you're going to prison if you call right. a plumber. <laughs> so they're MacGyvers. They fix problems at the farm that I never, never even make it to my desk. But the single biggest thing is was empowering them to go do things the right way because so many of them had dabbled in working in legal markets and had some guy with a spreadsheet telling them do it this way. And, and, and you're not going to ever be able to produce quality. You know, there's In our business, the difference between hand trimming, meaning people with scissors actually hand trimming buds versus machine trim, that's one of the single biggest differences. 90% of the marketplace machine trims. It'd be akin, imagine if you're, imagine if you're a, you know, a cattleman and you, you know, Wagyu beef cows and you sell it to someone, a processor, and they run it through a meat grinder and make hamburger meat out of it. You're like, what the hell? Why did I just do that? Why did I have, you know, well, same thing with farmers. These guys put their heart and soul into their job and then they're cramming it through a machine trimmer and it comes out. It's like, it's like, a, it's like a wood chipper. So we invest in the farm, number one, but we have to really treat the business, like you said, as individual business units that work together. So as we built the teams, each team kind of had, there was on their own P&L, had their own responsibilities and we held them accountable to it. And originally, I say we, it was like me and Mike Bondurant and two or three others. Our, our headcount was small. With the second business, we've been able to put some really talented people in place across the various different sectors. So we have it broken down by cultivation and processing. We have it broken down by lab, which is all the derivative products, the oils, the bombs, the creams, the tinctures. And then we have a commercial unit and then a retail unit. And then, in, and then you know, obviously, HR and compliance and everything else. But they're all individual business units, and we still to this day meet every Tuesday as an operations team for a, about an hour of, a, of an update session so everyone can get together for an hour at our home office in Fort Lauderdale. And then it's breakout sessions with management, with each individual business unit, past-looking, forward-looking, CapEx, OpEx, issues, flare shots, next group come in, and it's all day. So even when I'm here in Colorado, I sat in, this, in the same office I'm in right now 
for 10 hours on Tuesday going through it because you just have to. One little thing gets offline and you can have a big problem. But our entire mission was built on the farm. If you win at the farm, you, everything else takes care of itself. I, and that, that holds true legal market or illicit market. If you've got really good weed and you're selling it out of your trunk somewhere, you're not going to have a problem moving it. If you've got bad weed, now all of a sudden you got to start discounting and, and doing bulk deals and everything else. It's always been, it's the same notion holds true legal market to black market. So it, it all comes back and forth to the farm. And I've always put those guys up on a pedestal because they're, they're um, your open invitation, by the way, if you ever want to take the drive up to Orlando and come toward the farm, I'd love to show you. Okay. So what's the most common mistake you've seen others make or that you've made on the farming side? Not yeah, so Florida, just talking Florida, it is probably the worst environment in North America to grow cannabis because of our environmental conditions. It can go from 55 degree dew point in the morning to 105 at night, back down to 55. And one thing cannabis hates is temperature changes, especially cannabis hates humidity. It is a disaster. So where we've seen people struggle is it's not California. We have a lot of California operators because California market's failing and it sucks. They all moved to Florida. Oh yeah, we'll be fine. We know what we're doing and it doesn't go so well. Their flower has mold in it. They can't get the same yields, et cetera. So you really, there are no shortcuts. We've been guilty of trying to take a few shortcuts in our last business and we learned the hard way. You have to invest in your systems. You have to invest in dehumidification, HVAC, but then you got to invest in, even in the vaults in your stores. Those have to be properly conditioned because it, it, that product's going to sit there. We usually sell through stuff kind of net 35, 40 days, but you have to run your cure process to account for that. So there's so many little variances. It's the biggest thing you can people make mistakes on is shortcuts. There is no such thing as a shortcut. You cut a corner, it's coming back to haunt you. And I think that probably holds true in any industry, but especially in Florida cannabis, because the environmental conditions are so brutal. If you cut a corner, you are going to pay the price. And the minute you put bad product out, the street knows and you're in big trouble. So tell me the difference between CBD and THC and what are you guys doing? Is it a combination, separate? Break that whole thing down for me. So what's really interesting, and a good friend of mine walked me through this. We were at a conference uh, at Half Moon Bay. It was like a top 50 CEO thing that Canaccord put on probably, I think it was like 2019. His name's Dr. Michael Chen. He ran the Cannabinoid Research Institute at UCLA, probably the foremost institute on cannabis. And I said, look, you got to walk me through a few things here. We sat on the back patio and I got like a dissertation for two hours. But what's, what's really interesting that most people don't know is all of our bodies already have what's called an endocannabinoid system in your parasympathetic nervous system. So your body is already built and programmed to receive the cannabinoids in cannabis. And, you know, some of the most known cannabinoids in cannabis, that's the actual, the actual chemical interactions that can happen are they've only mapped around 155 of them so far. They think there's somewhere north of 3000 cannabinoids between cannabinoids and terpenes, but the most known are THC and CBD. So cannabinoid THC and CBD are in this are in the cannabis plant. And hemp, which is where most people derive CBD from, it's just a variation of a cannabis plant. It's less euphoric. So CBD will not actually get you that feeling of a high, that euphoric kind of mental feeling of a high. But where CBD has proven to be incredibly effective, it is is probably one of the biggest anti-inflammation reducers, just one of the biggest anti-inflammatory substances on planet Earth. So, you know, THC gives you that euphoric high. CBD has the, uh, the inflammation reduction. 
And then you have, you know, CBG, which helps with sleep. You have CBN also that helps with sleep. You have THCV, which has actually been found and isolated. It's actually a appetite suppressant for weight loss, which kind of runs contrary to the stoner. You know, everyone thinks you get high, you go eat a bag of Doritos, which you can. I, I Guilty. Guilty. But at the same time, they've been able, as, as more and more federal law has progressed, we got a big piece of marijuana research legislation passed and signed by the president earlier this year to open up more research. We're starting, they're starting to really make some breakthroughs and find like, as it pertains to chronic pain, it's, it's eight to nine times more effective than any of the, uh, of the opiates that are out there. And it's less addictive than aspirin by the DEA's own category. Little known fact. The DEA has held, the federal government has held patents on certain cannabinoid combinations and and actual cannabis strains for the better part of 30 years, even though it's federally illegal for everybody else. So they're just starting to kind of unpack what this thing can do. And it's really interesting to see, yeah, it's a great question. I get it all the time, CBD and THC. They're both cannabis. One's just going to get you high and, and, and one's not. But what's interesting and what science is starting to figure out is it's the entourage effect of how all those cannabinoids interact with each other that provides the long-term relief for both cancer patients. You know, what I saw in my father where he could actually get rid of the nausea from chemo. They're seeing it be, have, have the anti-inflammation effects, being able to reduce size of tumors and cancer treatment. So who knows what it's going to do? And look, there's always a potential for abuse, you know, just like alcohol, just like anything else. So it needs to be used responsibly, but we're starting to unlock it. And I never knew until that meeting with Dr. Chen that my body was already programmed to receive it. Everybody kind of thinks, okay, you know, it's just some, you know, stoner substance, whatever it is, your body actually was built to receive the cannabinoids. There's, there's a whole part of your nervous system that's waiting for them. What's your uh, favorite choice? Is it like a joint? Is it a tincture? What is it? I love a good joint. I mean, that for me, it's half the thing. It's the art of rolling the joint is such a manual process. I know you're, you know, you're like me. We're both in most of our works above the, above the shoulders, unless we're on the tennis court. And to have that menial kind of just rudimentary task to sit and kind of grind some weed up and roll a joint, that in and of itself is as relaxing as actually smoking the joint. But I like, I love a good joint. I love a good dab, you know, We've been we've we've been really deep. Our executive chef is putting on some amazing edible formulations. So you know, Lauren loves the edibles, and we just actually in partnership. We partner with one of the largest wine companies in the world. We're in a full JV with them, and their CEO just invested directly into one of our, in our debt round. And what we're working on that with them is a beverage, but not like a beverage that's just going to knock you out, but a sessionable beverage. So something that is low dose, micro dose, and we started with what's called a nectar, and it's a you can add it to, we were able to suspend the, the cannabinoids in the water column. So it's an even mix and you can, you know, it's all the dose by drops of that you want to put in there. So Lauren's been making mocktails all the time. I mean, I had just had a friend give us a, gift us a case of wine, nice, nice case of Camus. And well, I don't think we barely touched it because she's been making mocktails because she has two of them that, you know, low dose has a great night and gets up with no hangover the next day when she goes to teach yoga or does, you know, whatever she's going to do. And it, it, seeing that now all her friends want to try it, that's beverage is going to be, I think, if you were to ask me what in 10 years will be the biggest segment of cannabis right now, 53% of our market is actually flour that you smoke. I'd be willing to bet you that in 10 years, 50% of the market is going to be beverage. So what are you doing other than taking on this investor in terms of thinking about that? Oh, we're, we signed a full JV with the wine company where we are testing for them. We are the canary in the coal mine right now. 
but is that like wine? Like, are you drinking wine mixed with something or is it just some like a cocktail kind of thing? Well, they have all, they have all, they, they own one of the largest seltzer companies in the world. So they already have some RTDs. So we're working on the RTD side. I like it. Something you said about rolling, you know, the joint, I, I don't, you know, I've taken some gummies. I don't have a lot of experience with like rolling joints. It was never, it was never my thing, but um, I can teach you. Yeah. I, I need to come, I guess, learn. It's kind of a fantasy. Like, you know, we're friends. We're Instagram friends. I see you walking through your farms and there's something when you have such a high stress job and when you're using your brain so much to like get back to something you know, basic, like, you know, you happen to be in Aspen now. That's a place we love going back to nature, kind of like working the farm. What is it about that side of the business that has made it so exciting and has kept you in it other than the business of the business? You know, it's, it's a great, I'm glad you asked that question, man. It's, you know, part of that time that we get to do that kind of stuff is with our families, you know, going fishing with, going fishing with the sons and, going riding with my daughter. But for me, it's, I cherish the days I go to the farm. Um, again, in, in my, in my, amongst my peers, I'd say I go to my farm more than anybody else. I'm at the farm once or twice a month because it gets me grounded. It, it reminds me of why I'm doing this because when you're lost in spreadsheets and P and L's and balance sheets and deals and legislation and managing people, which is the hardest part, of being entrepreneurs, managing people. I fucking hate payroll. I hate it. It's a giant anvil on my back every two weeks. I absolutely loathe it. So to be able to go to the farm, it's that, it's that inspiration, but it's also that grounding of this is why we do this. And when I go there, I put gloves on and I go in the garden and I work. I get to spend a couple hours talking to guys that are doing this out of pure passion. If they make 10 grand or they make a hundred grand, it's not changing. They love being a part of that farming process and love being a part of the cannabis plant. And it's a very sobering, humbling reminder, just like it is for, you know, half the reason I love coming to Aspen is it's family. My family, I get to truly be around my family here. The other half of it is I get to think strategically again, because I'm not in the office in the chaos. I'm not, if I'm in my office every day, I got people walking in every 90 seconds, asking me a question or do something. I can't look down the field. And as we're on the verge of major federal reform and potential state, you know, recreational use, I got to start thinking about 24, 25, 26 and working in, in, you know, working on projects in DC and Tallahassee to shape what policy is going to look like. I could never do that in my office. So people ask me all the time, are you just sitting in Aspen all summer? I go, kind of. But it also allows me to strategically think in a way, same reason when I say I'm driving to the farm, they go, what are you doing? Like I mandate every member of my C-suite has to be in our farm once a month. Because you know what? Go up there because everything we do, the differentiator between us and everybody else starts there. Go get there, put some gloves on and understand why. It's a great question. And I think it almost applies. I mean, your business in hotels, I see you on Instagram. You're in your hotels. You have to physically be there. Because if you're not, you don't understand that, okay, maybe how we set up check-in at this hotel is pissing people off. Or maybe the employees are losing their mind because the kitchen's on the second floor and the storage area for food's on the third floor and they got to ride an elevator. I mean, I'm making this up, but when I go to the farm, I pick up things. The other thing I do is I physically go to every store in the state once a quarter. We do trips where we go hit three or four of them in a row just to talk to patients. 
And then I go to whatever the hottest little local restaurants and bars where people hang out. And I just go sit and talk to people because what'd you think? What do you like? What do you don't like? Tell me, those trips for me are inspiring. They're invigorating, but they also have shaped some pretty big campaigns and changes in the business that we've done. Whereas if I just sat in my office every day and got high on my own bullshit of what we thought was right, you're not going to succeed. So it's hard to travel like that, but you know, we're young, we're doing this for a reason. If we do this right across our respective businesses, I got a feeling we'll be able to spend time in Aspen, not thinking about it as much and not having to travel as much, but it's the single biggest differentiator. And I cherish the time I get to be out of the fucking office. And then what I love about the farm too, my cell phone, for whatever reason, doesn't have service in the farm. So as soon as I, I send a text message and I'm pulling out of the farm, Hey babe, sorry, I'll, I'll call you in a couple hours when the phone works. Cause I go on there and it's gone. It's the greatest thing ever. So in my business, I have to deal with, I have to think about employee theft. We have to think about HR. We have to think about hiring the right people. My business though, if someone steals a bottle of alcohol, they're, they're taking it home or they're drinking it. They're not selling it because you can go get a bottle of alcohol on the street. So I'm curious how more so at the farm, how you guys think about security internally and externally. And, you know, clearly you're fine hiring people with prior illicit experience. And and what have you kind of learned through that process on the security side and the hiring side to make sure you don't get screwed? It's it's the single hardest part of any business, I think, is HR. HR sucks. It's hard. People and finding the right people are hard. When you find them the right people, you put your arms around and hold on to them as tight as you can. So it kind of, again, starts and end culturally with, with the leaders on the farm. I found the right group of guys and girls that, that crush it. And I made sure in our last business where I could have been greedy personally. And when the RSU and the options pools came out, I could have taken them for us in the C-suite. I made sure every one of those people got a chunk so that when we sold that business, it was a life-changing moment for them. So that they were completely bought in as I knew we were going to go do it again. And it, this time we would own a bigger chunk of the business. So I need, I knew I need them. I always wanted them to be a part of it, to come along so that they self-enforce more than I could ever have to. Now that said, we have thorough protocols that have to be approved and reviewed by the state. The guy who's been running our security was number three at the department of Homeland security for like 10 years. So. We have had thefts. We have had people try to break in. We have unfortunately had to fire probably in my seven or eight years of doing this, less than 20 people for trying to, you know, stick a bud in their pocket while they're trimming or, you know, void some inventory out at the store level and try to take it home. It happens, but it's well less than, you know, 1% from a fail rate standpoint. And thankfully we haven't had a, a robbery type issue knocking on wood because everybody has such pride because unlike any other company in cannabis we put the plant first which matters to them and we care about culture and i you can't fake culture you either have it or you don't and if you have it people will self-enforce for you because they believe and they don't want to see it go away so that was a big you know i had financial advisors and i had board members going why are you giving these shares away to these people and i went because i'm making an investment in my next deal and I'm making an investment in my next two to three deals. As I tell the leadership team that's just below our C-suite, you know, the, I tell them all the time, hey, they're like, okay, once we, you know, if we ever, if we're successful on this one, what are we doing next? I go, next time you're running it and I'm sitting on your board. 
I'll help you raise capital. But my entire goal here was to create another class of leaders underneath me because this industry is not going away. It's only going to get bigger. So there's going to be opportunities. And like you, I'll never be able to stop working. I'll always do something. Got to have a reason to go to some office somewhere every day. And I needed to create that next class of people and show them what culture meant. Because I think it's something, I don't know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. But it seems like something that's becoming less and less a part of business in America these days. You know, it feels like culture is is slowly evaporating, irrespective of what the industry is. It's it's become more about P and Ls, and everybody is so scared to offend people or to to have that level of kind of interpersonal engagement in the era of Zoom and everything else. I feel like culture is going away, and it is such an important thing for business. So many businesses have failed because they lose culture. And I don't know how it is in the hotel industry, but I mean, anytime you're dealing with that many people, you, they got to have a reason to believe. They have to have an emotional reason to go do their job every day. And if you don't have culture, I don't really know how you do it. For us, it's the same thing. It's the most important thing. We had a terrible, I'm not going to say terrible culture. We had a very deficient culture coming into COVID, somewhat on the property side and definitely on the corporate side. And it required massive amounts of intention and work that we had to do at the corporate side, which included hiring some amazing A players, doing offsites and meetings and talking about culture and thinking about what culture you want to have and doing things differently, being you know more empathetic, but more specific around goals and what your expectations are. And now our culture is just night and day. And at the properties, like so much effort and planning goes into culture. It just doesn't happen by itself. And I used to think like naively that culture would just happen because like I'm a nice person and you know, I'm a positive person. It doesn't. You have to be super intentional and thoughtful about it. I would say the other thing you have to do is be present, which I see you do. And it's it's a big compliment from me to you that you do it. Because just showing up half the time gives the people a reason to believe. They think home office is just living in an office and you know going on vacation when they go on vacation and are not paying attention. When you are physically there and are you know, I walk into my store and one of my bud tenders who, you know, makes 18 bucks an hour and I sit and ask him how, you know, what do you like? What do you don't like? You know, what, what are you up to this weekend? Those little interactions, that doesn't happen anymore. You don't, you, you just don't, you just don't see it. And it, it baffles me. And I understand it's, it's a time commitment, but if you're investing in a business and you're investing and you want, and, and you're, you're looking for a return to me, uh, you know, outside of investing in facilities and retail stores, the single biggest investment I can make is my time and building culture. Because if you do that, it's like putting a boat on autopilot. They will make sure that nothing bad happens if they believe that you are engaged and care. And it's a lost art in modern corporate world, in my opinion. And I, I just don't get it. Yeah. I love how you said it because presence is, the key, but I think there's a new kind of presence. And it's actually something that I struggle with. I go into the office every day. I think it's amazing that you are in Colorado for six weeks and find the way to be present with your team, have figured it out without actually being physically present. But I'm sure it requires being overly physically present when you're there. The other thing that I find myself doing is worrying less and, and I want to get your take on this but like worrying less about the clock but also being intentional to show people that I'm working 24 hours a day like I'm sending you an email in the middle of the night 
If you want to call me about a problem, you call me at six in the morning, at 10 at night, whatever it is, and I pick up the phone. And even this podcast is a way to reach people that are on our team that I might not physically be near at, at one of our hotels or whatever. So how, how have you figured out how to do that? You know, Zoom's great, but it, it's not the end-all be-all. I've always, I've always, I mean, I, I can't count how many times in the early days, even as a lawyer, I'd fly to California on a morning flight just to have a lunch meeting with somebody and catch an afternoon flight home to catch the red eye home. Because in-person, in-person matters so much. And was I, I like Zoom for convenience, but if it's a meeting, get your ass there. You know, that's my what I tell my team. If, you, if you've got a big vendor that you're dealing with and you got an issue, get in the car, go to their office. I don't care. Figure it out. The other thing is don't go to bed unless I, I, I can't physically sleep if my email inbox, but when I close my eyes around midnight or one when I usually go to bed, has an unread email. And I think, you know, the other thing I always try to do is at least once a week, send an email communication out to the entire company. And it may, it, it's a, it's, you know, I jump on, I jump on the retail team conference calls without telling them I'll just pop in, you know, I'll, I'll pop into the cultivation team. I'll pop into compliance. I go to the stores all the time and don't tell them I'm coming. because I don't want them to, I want to see what it's, I want to see what it's like when I'm physically, you don't expect me to come. Now, sometimes I want to see what it's like when I'm coming, because that's generally what they're going to put on their best foot. And so you see that, but then you also just randomly show up. And I do that at the farm too, but it, it's, I also, I mean, there's not a ride home from the office and I'm about a 15 minute drive from my office home when I'm back in Fort Lauderdale that I'm not on the phone with a leader on my team. The, it, it, there's not a dog walk I do down 7th Street at night when, you know, the kids have gone to bed where I'm not on the phone with one member of my team just catching up and half of it's not about work. What's going on in life? Because they're all, what are you dealing with? What are you seeing? Okay, cool. It, 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 and and it's, it, the key is being genuine. It's one thing to show up when your store grand opening and cut the ribbon and hee hee hoo la and, and then go get back and fly out. It's another thing to go and say, hey, you know what? I'm in town. Close store closes at nine. Meet me at Bradley's on in on Palm Beach at uh, the end of Clematis. We have a store in Clematis. Meet me at Bradley's at nine thirty. I'm buying everybody dinner. Let's go have a few beers and catch up, play some pool. It's those little things, and it's hard because I also don't want to sacrifice home. You know, you've got kids. This is the time. You know. I now have a 13 year old and 11 year old. I can see the finish line and you know, I, I, I don't want to miss a moment. So it's a, it's, I sacrifice sleep on my end. I'd rather, I'd rather fly home from doing a tour from Pensacola to Jacksonville, seeing all my stores. I'd rather fly home on uh, the night of night two at midnight and get in at two in the morning and go to crawl in bed so I can cook the kids breakfast the next day. Cause then I get both things and I'll sleep when I'm dead. Cause like I said, you watch your dad die at 30 years old and it's a pretty sobering wake up call that you better get fucking moving. So for me, it's, it's it, what I missed the most from when we sold the last business to when I got back in the, the captain's chair again, I miss those grinds. I miss those moments. You know, the, I miss the capital raise. I miss the, the upward trend. I miss the problems. I miss the farm. I didn't miss payroll. But those are the things you miss. And if you're going to do it, do it. And the presence thing to me, I got that advice from a guy I look up to who has been a multi-company CEO, very successful. It was advice that he gave me, be present. You only get, don't look back 10 years from now and say, damn it, I wish I would have been more present because we could have done something else. Build the culture and be present and that'll last well past when the business is, whether you're a part of it or not, whether you sell it or don't, that will last. 
Some people, when they sell a business and then start a new business, just do copy paste. It was super successful. We're just going to do the same thing we did. Other people say, hey, I think I left something on the table. I can do it a little bit better. What are you doing at Sunburn in comparison to your prior business? Number one is, you know, the market's changed a little bit. So we couldn't run the exact same playbook. New entrants to the market. At the time we were there, we were the only premium operator. You know, other premiums have showed up, you know, to liken it to your business. If we were the four, you know, if we were Ritz Carlton, well, now the Four Seasons is here. And now Como Hotels is here. Now Mon's here. So you got to up your game. But what we've done differently is last time we did not have a, the brand we created one plant, we created on a piece of paper. We created it. What we've done this time, and it was a part of the benefit of having almost a year off to, to could take what was a TV show and all the thousands of hours of audio we had of my dad, the Colombians, the DEA agents, the judges, everybody, and turn that into a brand, an authentic brand. The single biggest thing we're doing this time is we have a brand. We have a real brand that real players in the alcohol industry and real players in branding have taken note of. And that's the thing I'm most proud of because it's authentic. We are who we are. And the, I think in America these days, everybody's trying to be everything. Every brand is trying to be everything to everybody, except for a few. You know, Harley Davidson really doesn't give a shit. You know, there's there's some that are still kind of rebel outlaw brands, and that's who we are. We don't do every, you know, we're not, we don't change our social media icon to a rainbow during Pride Month. We don't change our social media icon to a black square during Black Pride Month in February, because we live it every day. We come to come to one of our stores, and our team is diverse. Our team is, you know, the entire LGBTQ community is represented on our team. Our, our we don't have to do that. We're not going to kowtow. We are living in America in 1970s and 1980s when you're actually allowed to have fun. People smoke cannabis to have fun, and that's our entire mission. You know, it's me medical benefits, yes, but the large part of it is just like you read same reason you pour a tequila. It's to start something that's fun. And that is our entire ethos. And that's what we've done massively different this time is every decision we make, whether it's marketing, branding, cultivation, product selection that we're going to sell, anything goes back to, is it on brand? Like we just signed a partnership. It's the first time I've ever done anything with kind of like a celebrity uh, endorser. We just signed a, a deal. The first one, first one we chose was a professional surfer, Jacksonville named Justin Quintal, who's just one wave of the winner. Big fisherman, big surferman, local Florida boy. For our Florida community, he's huge and so happy to have him. We just signed Hulk Hogan. So, you know, Hulk is on our on our brand wall at our stores. He is Americana. He is if you grew up in the 80s or the 90s, you had WrestleMania, Hulk Hogan. And he's Florida. He's Florida. He lives in Clearwater. We have a store right in Tampa. So, but what I loved about Hulk is he's lived his life and he has lived it his way. He has not kowtowed to everything where it just I look at our I look at our, our society and so many big corporations and so many cult brands have gone astray because they just weren't willing to stand on their own two feet. They felt like they had to kowtow and worry about offending everybody. And we take a lot of crap for it on social media, but I bring it on because, you know, I go back to like Howard Stern, the average Howard Stern fan listened for an hour and a half, the average Howard Stern hater listened for two hours. So yeah, my mindset, love us or hate us, we're, we are who we are. We don't take ourselves seriously. We take cannabis seriously. And if you don't like us, fine, no big deal. But at the same time, we stand for, you know, we want to have fun. If you want to have fun, we're at the fun of, we're at the intersection of fun and high quality. That's it.
You also want to make money. This is a business that you're incredibly passionate about, and I know you're going to make money. As the regulation starts to fade away, does the vertical nature of your business also go away? And if it does, what component of that do you keep because it's the best? So in my mindset, we've always focused on being really good vertical operators because, you know, alcohol companies, whether it's alcohol, whether it's pharma, whoever comes to take it over, they don't know how to grow weed. So I will happily exit the retail game. Happily. Running retail is, you know, I think cannabis is probably one of the only industries in America that is continuing to open retail right now. You see retail closures everywhere else. So I will happily build a brand, run cultivation, and ultimately have Southern Wine or Johnson Brothers come pick on my product up and stock their, you know, C stores and alcohol. Come, come get it. So it's where I've watched a lot of my competitors, you know, like Truly, for example, who's the number one market share in Florida. They have 123 retail locations in Florida. Some people see that and go, wow. I see that and go, oh, God, it, uh, no, thank you. Because the minute that Total Wine and More can pull cigars out and put joints and gummies in, they're going to do it. The minute that, you know, 7-Eleven can pull all the cigarette out behind the counter and put cannabis in, they're just going to want brands they can put in. And that's where we come in. Okay. So if your retail stores are less important, explain to me why then your retail stores look 10 times, a hundred times better than all these other crappy retail stores that look like they have the brightest neon lights. It, it looks like, you know, like a little bodega or something. It's a porn in store. It's, it's it a, looks porn like a porn store. store. That's what it is. They all look like that, but yours don't. Why? We wanted to use the vertical integration and I didn't want, I didn't want to become a retail brand. I want to become a product brand. And we took the model of wine, wine companies have with their tasting rooms. So you go to a tasting room in, in Napa or you go to a tasting room somewhere, you walk in, it's an amazing experience. It's rich in history. It's welcoming. It's open. It's where you want to hang out. It's fun. And then you want to sign up for the wine list and it's getting auto shipped to you. And like two years later, you don't know why a goddamn box of wine showed up. So. We, you know, by the way, we didn't design those stores that way. The MedMen, who we bought the assets from, spent three and a half million dollars a store. And they were onto something because what they did is they were the most revolutionary company in cannabis in California. They, they created an Apple style retail experience when everything else was what we just talked about a bad porn store with frosted glass to bring the soccer moms in, a place that my wife or your wife would pull into. So, we inherit that's why we had a couple different asset groups that we could go buy. We chose MedMen for that very reason to say, that's, I want to, I don't need a hundred stores if I've got 20 like that. And when, when, when the moment comes, we can still use them as tasting rooms. Tell me about raising capital for your business. You raised $105 million for the most recent one. How did you do that? Like, oh what were people Painful. telling you? What was the most common reason why someone's not investing? Give me the stories. That's a funny one. So we did it by ourselves. So first off, it was non-brokered. So it was me and Danny Moses and our existing team. We targeted alcohol. So one of the guys on our team, Ryan Martin, comes with you know close to 25 years of executive alcohol experience. So he helped us in the last deal at the very end, came over, and then we've been on this one from the ground floor. He's a he's a brand wizard. He built most of the, the big brands in wine right now that you see. Orrin Swift, he was a part of that team. You know, Dave Finney, who created Orrin Swift's on our cap table. So we he helped if you go to our stores with that whole wall we have on the, the brand wall. 
that was an, a, a suggestion from Dave, because if you look at his bottle of abstract, he did the same thing. It's a collage. So he's the one that told us, hey, I love your brand book. Go do that on your wall. So raising capital sucked. The cannabis industry was in the toilet. It was down 90% from its 2021 peak. The most common reason we got told no was, well, we can just go buy the publics that are on sale right now. We go buy all the public companies that are on sale. Why would we? So the funny part is everybody was telling me that in the summer, last summer and last fall, and they're down another 50% from when they're telling me that. So I, I've, I've sent every one of those fund managers emails, how are those publics done? At least if you were with me, you'd be flat. <laughs> you would not be down. So it sucked, but it was, I'd say almost 80% of our investors were new cannabis, first cannabis check. You know, we had and a are couple they big institutions or families or high net worth, anchors, high net worth and family office. You know, our biggest check writer is an individual from one guy who was very successful exits in payment processing and payment security. You know, he's in for 13 million. We had another uh, kind of group of group of people from Houston that's in for 13 million. And then probably the average check size outside of those two guys is right around a million bucks. So it was a long road. I mean, to get that, it was a, it was, and we didn't have any, you know, road shows. I and mean, we had a few, went to Houston a few times, went a few other places, but in large part, it's been, you know, just people that saw what we did last time and wanted to be a part of it or people that understood what we wanted to do from a branding standpoint and with, with the alcohol background and say, okay, we want to be a part of you. You guys are nuanced. You're differentiated. You're not just saying we're going to go open weed stores and go public. You're saying my pitch has always been, I'm not building this to sell to a cannabis company. I'm building this to sell to alcohol, tobacco, or pharmaceutical company because they're going to need a brand. And it's a nuanced approach that not many people are focused on. But what's been really funny since we, you know, everything like, you know, you raise capital, your deck ends up on the, as soon as you send it out, it ends up across the fucking world. Every one of your competitors has it. The NDA is not worth the paper that it's written on. And so many of my competitors now at the last conference I was at, we're all talking about brands and I busted all their fucking chops when we were having drinks afterwards. Like I was at your last panel a year ago. <laughs> you fuckers didn't know what a brand was. I go raise a hundred million and start a brand focused business in Florida. And now everybody's doing brands. Come on, at least wait a cycle, wait for the next conference to talk about it. Come on guys. So it's, it, it it's brutal though. I mean, raising capital, is a daily report card on your mental health. I feel like it is just, you close one, woohoo, we're going to dinner family. You lose one, ramen noodles. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it sucks. It's highs and lows and it's getting used to rejection. I want to know from you because we've raised, I don't know, hundreds of millions of dollars of equity, just like literally piece by piece, maybe a few institutions thrown in there. What would surprise listeners most about your approach to actually closing an investor? Number one is radical transparency, you know, being very, you know, because cannabis has a bad track record for investors. You know, some people did really well. Most retail investors got absolutely smoked. So radical transparency when you're walking in the room. And then I think the approach is just, if you're looking to just, get involved in the industry, go buy the publics because it's probably a safer bet for you. We are building a brand here and we're building something. We're going at this a lot differently. We're viewing this as not a retail brand, a product brand. And then the last thing is, is just we were very targeted on where we raised capital. We wanted to raise capital from a couple of different buckets. A, obviously strategics uh, like alcohol and others. 
But the other thing is we have retail stores across the state of Florida. You know, we bought 13 of them. We're going to open another seven. We'll cap, we'll, we'll top out right around 20 stores just to be able to cover the breadth of the state. Apple did it with 21 stores. I think we'll be right around 20 stores. And I looked to go use my network being a lifelong Floridian and more importantly, being a you know politico and active in politics in Florida, kind of knew who the heavy hitters were in every every location where we were. We went and raised capital from the community stakeholders in each place where we had a store. So that I had built-in reasons and built-in ambassadors to tell people, go to that store. Like Sarasota, for example, our landlord on our Main Street store in Sarasota is an investor. The guy that owns all the bars and restaurants on Main Street and out on the island is an investor. So anytime I want to throw a happy hour, because we do a ton of happy hours, we do, I'll sponsor a band for 300 bucks and do a $150 bar tab. And we're handing out hats and t-shirts. I got people with iPads there getting telephone numbers and email addresses. So I, I can opt them into my my communication platform. We have doctors at events. So I'll have the doctor that can actually write a script, go set a tent up across the street from where we're having a happy hour, and we'll sign 30, 40 people up for cards. If you went to a happy hour and you were thinking about getting a cannabis card, and this company, Sunburn, had a doctor there where you can get a card on your own while you're at happy hour, go get another couple of beers and leave, you're not shopping anywhere else. We have like a 73% retention rate. So raising capital in those individual communities has proven to be a very good thing because like, you know, my Key West store, the city was cracking our, cracking our nuts about getting some, you know, radius survey redone, or they weren't going to issue me the CO so I could open. I had a huge investor at Key West who basically runs the town down there, made two phone calls and I got my radius survey done in a day. They told me it was a month. So it was a nuanced approach to not go do a industry association conference roadshow with a bunch of funds. It was, let's go the other route. And if I've got to have a store in Sarasota, I need the fathers of Sarasota, the city fathers of Sarasota to say, yeah, I'm in that deal. Go to that store. Took longer. That's why it took us almost nine months, but it's proven to be very effective as we go and open these stores and have the opening parties and have continued. And we have an outreach team. We're doing 30 events a month. Anything from, you know, Tortuga to happy hours to, you know, garden shows. Yeah, we just did a, we just did a, that was, that was really fucking cool. That was at a Dunbar ranch, Kevin Costner's ranch. Actually, Lauren sat next to him the other night at uh, Casa Tua. He was having dinner with Calvin Klein Costner, but his ranch, it's a big, it was during food and wine. It was all the alcohol. It was the last day of food and wine. It was the big kind of finale party with all the execs there and all the distributors there. And the 311 played and the stage was a sunburn stage. So it was pretty cool. So it's that type of stuff where people were asking, what are you guys doing here? Why are you at an alcohol event? I go, the fact that you just asked the question is exactly why I'm here. When the wall comes down, I want to be here. Okay. So the biggest opportunity I think you mentioned is beverage, maybe in the next 10 years. Where do you want Sunburn to be in the next five years? I want adult use in Florida. I want uh, the ability to have anyone over the age of 21 to be able to purchase it which we are teed up right now. There's constitutional amendments at the Supreme Court. We already have the signatures. So that takes our market from 800,000 patients right now, plus or minus to 118 million people over the age of 21 on an annual basis coming through Florida. And my stores are located where the tourists are coming. I'm at the beach. I'm, I'm next to Wales Rib in Deerfield Beach. I'm on South Beach at 13th and Alton. I'm on Key West on Duval Street. So when that happens, that's a huge catalyst for us. Uh, I want to be a top three, top four player in Florida. 
but more importantly, I want to have a brand. Like it's humbling to me that I, as I walk around Aspen, which we don't have a store in Colorado, and I've been out here now two years wearing sunburn hats, I get stopped four or five times a day from people asking me where they can go buy it. And now, because I've dropped some hats off and given them out to kind of buddies around here, buddies that are bartenders, my buddy that owns a bike shop, all the guys at the bike shop, now you see them walking around all over town. You know, I, I, I was up on the mountain the other day and one of the one of the, the trail signs on the mountain had a sunburn sticker on it. So to see, you know, I got buddies sending me in front of mine, I was just in St. Bart's, met Latisse St. Bart's and there's a sunburn sticker on the one of the pilings. So it's it's that type of stuff. If we can be successful doing that guy was just an Abaco at Pete's pub and there's a sunburn sticker on the bar. So that type of stuff for me, if we can be one of those brands, I want, if I can be a Yeti, if I can be a Harley Davidson that stays authentic to who we are. Remember Harley started for, as a, for biker gangs. Now 75 year old grandmas drive them and they still, <laughs> guess what? Biker gangs still drive Harleys. So if I could be Harley Davidson, I want to be Harley Davidson. That's the goal. I ask all the guests on the podcast the same closing question. Hit me. And and that is, that is, what is your favorite hotel? It would have to be a Dove Hill property. No, you not one of mine. <laughs> Pick, come on, okay. give me your favorite hotel. The best hotel I've ever stayed at in my life was the Lafay Hotel in Lake Garda, Italy. It was absolutely fucking outrageous. Could not recommend it more. Lake Lake Como, really cool. Lake Garda, another planet. Wow. Close to Milan, right? Yeah, you're two hours. We flew into Milan and drove there. The second second place would probably be anything in St. Bart's. <laughs> oh my God. St. Bart's is like the greatest. Let's go there. In Let's Bart's. do it. Done. Sold. I'll buy St. Bart's, you buy Aspen, and then we'll like split it or something. It'll be a timeshare. It'll be a home and away. Done. Home run. All right, man. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, thank you, buddy. Hey, everyone. It's Jake here. Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Jay Warzak. I'll see you in the next episode. Jake Warzak is the founder and CEO of Dove Hill Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dove Hill Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate, financial, or investment advice.